Hey everybody, this is Volts for March 16th, 2022. Volts Podcast, David Sue on the little grassroots energy policy that grew like kudzu. I'm your host, David Roberts. In the late 1990s, a small group of advocates and activists snuck a modest provision into a larger electricity restructuring bill that was passing through the Massachusetts legislature. It was so obscure that the media scarcely noticed it. It's not even clear if the governor's staff knew it was in there. The policy had a different name then, but today it's come to be known as Community Choice Aggregation. The idea is simple. Communities can band together and take over energy procurement from their electrical utilities. The utilities remain responsible for infrastructure and billing, but the communities get to decide where their energy comes from and what kind of energy it is. Since that humble beginning, community choice aggregation has taken off. Currently, more than 1,800 communities in six states comprising 36 million customers, some 11% of U.S. ratepayers, choose their own energy supply. There are more states and communities considering community choice aggregation every day. It is, in our otherwise grim times, a hopeful story about climate policy, a true demonstration of the power of grassroots activism to make lasting change. David Sue, an associate professor of urban and environmental planning at MIT, has researched the origins and growth of community choice aggregation and recently published the results in the journal Energy Research and Social Science. So I thought I would have him on the pod to talk about how this unassuming policy with the difficult-to-remember name grew from such modest beginnings to such sprawling size so fast. We also discussed the differences among different community choice aggregations, the kinds of innovations they're spawning, and their future trajectory. Without further ado, David Sue, welcome to Volts. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation. So I have been hearing about community choice aggregation Uh, for many years now and have long thought that I should do some sort of deep dive or closer look. And then here you did this great paper recently where you dug into the history and and how it developed. So I'm excited to get into this. Before we jump in to the history, though, let's just as a snapshot right up here up top, tell the audience, what is community choice aggregation? You know, sort of how many are there now? Where are they? What's the current snapshot? Sure. Uh, Community choice aggregation goes by many names, which is why I think people haven't recognized how far it's spread. It's sometimes called community choice energy. That's what it's called in Boston. It's called governmental aggregation, I think, in Ohio and municipal aggregation in Illinois and Massachusetts, I think. So it has all these different names. So no one's yet come up with a catchy good name for it, then. We're going to go with the terrible names, just like everything else in energy. Aggregation is not the catchiest word. I do think community (laughs) choice energy preserves most of what the advocates are getting at, yeah. But the key thing is that there's about 1,900 municipalities uh, that have so far chosen to um, use uh, community choice aggregation. It's authorized by state legislation in 10 states, Massachusetts, Ohio, Illinois, California, New York, New Jersey, New Hampshire, Maryland has a pilot, and Virginia, I think, are all of them. 
And the key thing is that, you know, I don't think people have really recognized how far it's spread. These 1900 municipalities represent about 36 million people, about 11% of the U.S. population. So what, what are they doing? What is it? So, yeah, sorry, I should have explained that. But what <laughs> basically happens is that the local government, uh, if enabled by state legislation, can procure energy directly through a competitive market, a wholesale market. And so uh, it can be initiated by elected officials in some states and other states has to be initiated by a ballot referendum. Oh, interesting. So so in some places, it can be done without a vote from yeah. voters. Yeah. But the key thing is that those officials are still accountable to voters uh, through their jobs. Right, right, right. So one way to look at this is the utility for a city does several things, one of which is procure energy, right? And so yeah. community choice aggregation is turning that part of the utilities job over to the city, but the other parts of the utilities job are still done by the utility, right? That's right. The utility still delivers the power through their distribution network, which they have a regulated monopoly on, but the uh, community choice aggregation and aggregation can basically sign the procurement contract and they can do other things like local economic development. They can build distributed energy resources. It depends on the state and depends on the aggregation. Right. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But what it, it seems then that this is only possible in restructured electricity markets where there is a wholesale electricity market. Is that right? You couldn't do this in an area with a fully vertically integrated utility, could you? I think that's right. Yeah. So I think it, the legislation almost always follows restructuring, usually hard on the heels restructuring, sometimes a little later. But it has to be in a restructured market, as far as I know. Okay. Uh, so... We'll get into later, uh, a little bit later, what's the significance of cities purchasing their own energy, why they'd want to do it and what the effects are. But first, let's, you know, this has become a very big deal. As you say, 1,900 municipalities, 36 million people. It's a substantial portion of the nation's ratepayers now that are yep. involved in these. But the beginnings were incredibly modest, not not something that if you would observed them at the time, you would have said, oh, yeah, this is this is going to be huge. So tell us the, the sort of story about the germ of this idea and where it came from. Sure. Yeah, I'm uh, excited about this story in lots of different ways. But it starts with a journalist named Scott Ridley. He is a journalist working in Massachusetts. He becomes a consumer environmental advocate because a lot of people at the time in the 1970s are protesting against nuclear power in Massachusetts and elsewhere. Mm. So he becomes an environmental activist, but through his journalism, he's also researching the borrowing capacity of cities and how what laws basically govern how cities borrow money. And it comes to a head because at the time, the utility that's building a nuclear power plant, uh, Seabrook, I think, is basically trying to, because they're encountering cost overruns, like all nuclear power plants in the 1970s, <laughs> they want the local cities and municipalities to borrow for them using their tax exempt rate and to buy a share of nuclear power. And so it kind of brings his consumer advocacy interests and his environmental interests together. Mm -hmm. He starts writing against nuclear power and this financing plan. He forms an advocacy group called the Clamshell Alliance, and they basically help, along with many other groups, defeat, I think, this additional unit in Seabrook, the Seabrook Nuclear Power Plant. From that, he links up with a historian at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, named Richard Rudolph. They write a book together in the 80s called Power Struggle. Yeah, great book. Notable book. Everybody should read that. You know, I'm curious how many people know about that book because it comes up here and there, but I sometimes feel like it's not as well known as it should be. 
So they write this book in the 80s. And, you know, for me, it's kind of a revelation because I started researching aggregation and then realized this book had been on my shelf for a couple of years and I hadn't read it. Mm-hmm. And it's this history of the political history of utilities and ownership of the utility system. And it's interesting because it's written for a general audience, but it basically details like how we got munis and how we got IOUs and how we got regulation and the kind of as it writes it as a political struggle. After he writes this book, he and Richard Rudolph, I think, tour around uh, this book around public power advocates, nuclear advocates. But the key thing is he goes off to Chicago to try to help them renegotiate their municipal franchise. And, you know, Chicago is the birthplace of the electric grid with Samuel Insull in the 1880s. So this is like the third time they're re-signing a franchise, like every 40 or 50 years. And it turns out Chicago is re-signing their franchise right now. But what happens in 1990 or so is that the municipalization fails because Harold Washington, the mayor at the time, dies of a heart attack. So municipalization doesn't happen in Chicago and the franchise renegotiation doesn't happen. And he goes off to Cape Cod. Let me, let me just pause here for listeners who might not have the background education in geekery. Yeah. Just to, de- just to define a few things. An IOU is an investor-owned utility, more or less the standard model yep. in, in restructured areas where there are competitive wholesale markets. And a muni is a municipal utility. And that's basically a municipal area taking over everything from the utility, becoming its own utility, having a publicly owned utility that serves its energy and owns all its distribution infrastructure and bills and does everything else. So that's what IOUs and munis are just uh, just for reference. Yeah. But the the franchise agreement is basically the agreement by which the city allows the investor-owned utility to use their rights of way, their property, to build the poles and wires that serve electricity. And so when this franchise renegotiation fails in the early 1990s, late 80s, at that point, uh, Scott Ridley is working as a consultant. He goes back to Cape Cod and finds out that Cape Cod has really high power rates or really high electricity rates. Uh, It turns out the humble beginnings are um, Cape Cod is one of the fastest growing regions in the country at the time. Hmm. A local county official named Rob O'Leary helped set up a county planning commission for the first time, which is kind of interesting to me as an urban planner. And then another local activist named Matt Patrick has a nonprofit focused on energy efficiency at the time. So the three of them get together and they know something like electricity restructuring is in the conversation almost all over the country at the time. The three of them get together and start talking about what this might mean for uh, local towns and cities because they already have incredibly high electricity rates or rates for power. And so the three of them get together and Scott Ridley has all this experience researching the political history of how utilities and towns and cities interact or really conflict. And they decide that they want to try to write a role for cities and towns into the new landscape that might be coming with restructuring or competition. Right. I'm going to pause again and do more terms. <laughs> I realize now I should have done more of this up front. But just um, for listeners who aren't familiar, once upon a time, all utilities were what's called vertically integrated monopolies. They owned everything. They owned all the infrastructure. They owned all the power plants. They did everything. And there was this wave of restructuring, as it's called, in the sort of 80s and 90s, early 2000s, whereby they broke those utilities up such that the entities that owned the generators competed in markets, wholesale generation markets, and the entities that owned the power poles, the actual infrastructure and build customers became just what are called wires companies, which just owned the infrastructure. Those became two separate entities. The idea was to introduce competition into the power game with the idea that competition would reduce prices. 
Also, the one thing I'd add is that also they introduced retail choice programs at the time to try to give consumers a choice on the retail side, like individual residential home customers, to try to pick between power companies uh, with varying degrees of success. Right. But notably, the wholesale side uh, competition has taken off, I think, and is mostly viewed as a success, whereas retail choice, having individuals be able to choose their power companies, just as good like as good of an idea as it sounds has not really taken off yeah. in the same way it has not succeeded in the same way and we can talk about if you want we can talk about this later when we talk about ccas but i think it's generally viewed as not nearly as successful as the wholesale competition right okay um matt patrick rob o'leary and scott ridley start talking about an energy plan for the cape they call up a state senator, uh, Mark Montigny, who I think at the time is chairman of the Energy Committee, and his advisor, a uh, staffer named Paul Fenn. And when they start talking, they've basically all read Scott's book at this point. Uh, they've started talking about what kind of uh, thinking around competition is coming through the legislature, through the governor, nationwide. And so they write a trial bill in 1994, 1995, gets killed, goes down, basically. Um, the chairman of the committee moves to another committee. Uh, Paul Fenn leaves for California to get involved in politics. The most interesting part of the story, though, is I think this is where the story really picks up in some ways, is that there's an aspect of direct democracy that's really interesting to me as somebody mm -hmm. from Massachusetts. Uh, for those of you who don't know, New England has this tradition called town meeting. It's mm -hmm. something that originates, I think, in the 1700s before the American Revolution. And it's the idea that in these small towns and villages, essentially, you have this annual meeting, you get together, anyone can introduce a resolution to this town meeting. And so what's really fascinating to me is that it's kind of a uniquely New England thing. Ridley, Patrick, and O'Leary start visiting towns to try to introduce non-binding resolutions. And they actually have the text of one. Mm. The text says this is a non-binding resolution. We simply want to express as a town that if there is reforms in the electricity industry, we would like to have a choice. We would like to be able to make a choice of who we get power from. We would like to be able to make a choice as a community, as a town. And what happens is when they start introducing these non-binding resolutions, they tell these great stories of like, they'd go to the utility and the utility guy would like literally laugh at them. <sighs> and the utility guy would say, this is my territory. This is never going to happen. He would laugh them out of the office. What happens is when they start passing these non-binding resolutions, the utilities do two things. They first ignore this completely. And that actually builds support among communities that said, you know, we actually expressed our desire for this. We would like to see a change. We'd like to have a choice. And then the utility tries to come in and undercut some of the proposals. But what happens is it builds support among a lot of small towns and communities in Cape Cod and Western Massachusetts. Uh, traditionally, those communities, I don't feel like they have a voice in the, in the legislature. But after 20 or 30 communities express support for this, they actually go to the legislators, uh, these three activists or advocates, and they say, oh, we have 20 or 30 towns that are interested. The legislators start listening. And the key thing is that there's this whole restructuring process that we tend to talk about that the governor and that's a negotiated settlement between the utilities and unions and environmental activists. It turns out if you look at the archives, those negotiated sessions almost never mention this aggregation because the legislators put it into the bill almost without the governor's knowledge. The only <laughs> memo I can find of the governor's staff even talking about it is a memo from the morning of the bill signing, which is clearly the, the thing that you know lawyers write before the bill signing. Right. And I think this is what they pass around the staff and the governor signs it that day. And somehow community choice aggregation makes it into the bill. And it languishes in some ways because the Cape Cod communities, about 10, I think or so communities spend about three to five years trying to implement this new idea, which everyone is against. 
I just want to pause and call out this part of the story because I, I find it delightful that yeah. that this thing that now is so huge passed almost without notice, basically just snuck into a bill almost without notice. It reminds me of uh, it reminded me of a story. I was once in Berlin. God, this is going to sound so pretentious. I was, <laughs> I was once in Berlin at a like a 300 year old restaurant eating schnitzel and spetzel with uh, Hans Joseph Fell, the famous German legislator and clean energy activist. And he's the guy who co-authored Germany's feed-in tariff bill, which went on to utterly revolutionize uh, German electricity and arguably global electricity, you know, provided that a massive amount of German demand for that early growth of solar. And he told me the exact same thing. He's like, there was no big fight. No one noticed. Right. No one cared. No one thought it would do anything. This right. is like, to me, if you're a policy entrepreneur, this is like the golden sweet spot, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is like the, the policy window that only you know about. Nobody yeah, else cares about. Exactly. You just sneak it in. And then once it's in, it grows like kudzu without, and, and then it's too late to stop once they notice it. That's the... I mean, and, and there's some great parts about that too. Like one of the activists, Matt Patrick says, you know, I decided that we should try to get some assistant benefit charges, which is the charges that utilities collect to do energy efficiency, right? Mm -hmm. Because the restructuring was negotiated settlement between the utilities and the regulators and the unions to some extent. And so the utility said, well, okay, we'll do energy efficiency if you allow us to collect ratepayer money to put it into you know, what we have is mass save now, right? It's a very successful energy efficiency program. But Matt Patrick said, you know, like two weeks before the bill signing, I decided that I think we deserve some of that funds in the Cape Cod because he was an energy efficiency activist. So he wanted to direct it to Cape Cod because they really felt like they could do energy efficiency better and that, you know, the state wasn't doing energy efficiency in a way that benefited the Cape. And so he said, you know, I wrote that section and put it in the bill and nobody noticed. <laughs> and so in a way, that's the kind of amazing part that, you know, other states haven't necessarily had clauses like that. And you realize clauses like that exist because Matt Patrick decided to put it in as far as I can tell. Yes. I mean, this is really a story of a handful of people taking enormously historically important action that uh, it's a story about what a small group of people can do, I guess. I, I actually, you know, feel like the story found me, even though I was kind of looking for that story, because like I started this around 2017, my students were all depressed for obvious reasons. <laughs> and I was looking for a, a way to tell them, like, you could make change the energy system by starting small and focusing on something and finding your policy window. And so, you know, the story kind of got deeper from there, but it kind of amply fulfilled what I was looking for, even if I didn't know that's what I was looking for. So so then Massachusetts passes this thing sort of by accident, behind its own back, uh, without noticing. Yep. And as you say, it took a while, the implementation took a while. So what's the, uh, you know, because another real policy lesson here, it's one thing to pass something and it's, and, you know, implementation is also important and also crucially comes down to really the actions of a handful of people, again, to make it work. So, like, who figured it out on the ground? They just stuck with it. You know, there was a uh, grant writer at the time who joined them named Maggie Downey. She's actually the head of the Cape Light Compact today, which is what the current uh, name is of that kind of uh, first CCA. Uh, Scott really stuck with it as a consultant and helped them work out the energy efficiency program and helped them negotiate their first contracts. Uh, Matt Patrick and Rob O'Leary stayed involved. They uh, later went on to the state legislature themselves, hopefully paying attention to activists like they used to be. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, the generators didn't want to sign contracts with them at first because they were unknown entity. Uh, the regulators didn't want to help, even though it was passed legislation. You know, regulators didn't want to translate that legislation into action. Yeah. Uh, you had some generators like, you know, Enron at first was around at the time, didn't want to sign a contract with them. 
until Enron started realizing that, you know, their whole idea around consumer choice and allowing people to choose between different generators, they suddenly realized that these local cities and towns could acquire them customers much more cheaply than they could do themselves. They kind of learned this lesson in other states, cities and states too. Uh, but the key thing is that you know, the Cape Light Compact was like 10 or 11 cities, I think, in the first year of getting together. They start doing advocacy right away because it's already built up in the local community. There's like a some settlement as part of the restructuring where like $25 million would have gone from the sale of power plants to Cambridge. I think actually Harvard and MIT would have benefited from that. And they actually right away did advocacy, filed um, essentially a claim in the restructuring process. And I think they won the $25 million back for the Cape. Uh, which, you know, probably meant a lot more in the 1990s than it does now. <laughs> but, you know, the key thing is that they had already done the organizing in local communities. People had already agreed to do it. They'd already started working collectively through cities and towns. And that, you know, these three or four activists stuck with it. But that, you know, they had the expertise, they had the knowledge to get this going. But it still takes them three to five years. They have to use various legal loopholes. They're struggling against what's called a standard offer, which exists in almost all restructuring states. Uh, where legislators think they're doing this great thing, where we're going to set the prices low to make sure customers want to be happy after this legislation. But what happens when they set the price low is they actually set it at an artificially low market rate, and they actually preclude new entrants from coming in. So it actually stops the Cape Flight Compact from charging the market price for three to five years. Until they find a loophole, they manage to offer power just to new customers, and they get going after they manage to start offering power at market rate. But, you know, it's kind of, it's just this really jury-rigged beginning for the first three to five years. They're just trying to figure out, like, problem after problem. Uh, one of the governor's staff says, you know, nobody deserves more credit than them for just sticking with it when nobody else, no one else believed in it. And they believed in it and they made it work. And that particular CCA is still around and, and well-regarded, is it not? Still around. I think it's expanded to uh, Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket, islands off the Cape. Uh, there are, I think, up to 25 towns now, and they regularly win energy efficiency awards. They're still a small staff, but they uh, still are quite active. And they're doing really cool stuff like building electrification, too. So then you had them in Massachusetts. I also thought it was kind of an interesting part of the story is you don't get a sort of what you'd call direct spread to other states. It's sort of indirect. It's kind of word of mouth about these things spreads and other policy entrepreneurs and other states kind of take it and, and run with it. It's it sort of like diffuses throughout the... Yep. That's, uh, that's the word that academics would use, policy diffusion. Another uh, academic, somewhat pretentious sounding phrase that we use is epistemic communities. Right. Uh, communities of like lawyers, uh, energy advocates start hearing about this through journals. Another theory is that, you know, there's kind of a policy imitation, like states start imitating other states that are doing the same thing. Right. So all these states are talking about restructuring at the time. And every time they talk about restructuring, the idea kind of spreads. There's some really good stories if you want to hear the side stories. But like the stories are like people hear about this through journals. I hear about this thing that happened in Massachusetts. And then in every state, they start thinking about the similar idea because it's been proven to work, or at least it's proven that it can be passed in Massachusetts. But then every state writes their legislation a little differently. Mm. Um, and then it's interesting how sometimes these historical things come down to kind of really like weird coincidence, I guess. So. <laughs> yes. Contingency plays such a huge role. Find that out over and over again. One of the activists or one of the people associated with the early aggregation in Ohio told me that he thought that part of the reason why the idea took off is that one of the activists who had a fairly Irish name came out and talked to all these Irish mayors in Northeast Ohio. 
and that they picked up on the idea. He's, oh, I remember that. I remember it was one of the Irish guys from Massachusetts, and all the Irish mayors loved this idea. And they wanted to get something out of restructuring, and they decided because they heard about this from a guy from Massachusetts that you know we we should put this in the restructuring legislation too. Yeah, it really does. You know, like at certain points, particular individuals can really be a fulcrum, be a huge you know sort of turning point. So now, you know, they spread from Massachusetts to California and elsewhere. And now, as we said at the outset, there are uh, 36 million people are involved in these 1900 municipalities. They're still, I think, spreading rapidly. I mean, would you say that it hasn't really um, th- I know they, they began as kind of a remora fish attached to <laughs> uh, restructuring. Uh, re- re- restructuring, you know, kind of snuck in with restructuring the and restructuring, restructuring. Yes. And restructuring seems to have lost momentum, <laughs> but, but right. are our new CCA still spreading. Yep, new CCAs are still spreading. Um, you look at Massachusetts, there was just the Cape Light Compact for such a long time. Uh, it started to pick up about five or 10 years ago, and then about a third of the cities and towns of Massachusetts chose to do it over the last five years. So now I think we're almost up to about half of the cities and towns of Massachusetts. Most importantly, I guess in some ways, just in terms of sheer size, the city of Boston just started, uh, chose this a year or so ago and just started serving power in the last year. Didn't Chicago also do it? Chicago had had an aggregation in 2011, 2012, and a lot of the uh, environmental advocates decided that they wanted to see this happen in Illinois. Uh, The utilities didn't fight at the time, and Chicago chose aggregation. What happened is that an insane number of cities and towns in Illinois chose to do aggregation because the utilities had fairly long market con- or long contracts locking in a high rate of power. Right. And what's happened in almost every market is that the CCAs, because they've come late to solar power and solar power has gotten progressively cheaper, they've basically entered markets where the price of electricity has been going down. So they sign a new contract at a market rate. They almost always come in lower than utility uh, long-term contracts have been. So in Illinois, I think like, you know, somebody said you could almost do nothing and earn like 20 or 30%. <laughs> you could get 20 to 30% savings for your community. Right. Uh, Chicago signed an aggregation because like, I think I calculated 90 plus percent of Illinois' population signed up for these aggregations. And then Rahm Emanuel, when he took over as mayor, I think stopped the aggregation because he was dealing with uh, financial difficulties and he had a few priorities and he said the aggregation no longer was saving Chicago money. So they got rid of their aggregation. Hmm. The good story about Illinois is that, you know, despite going to such a high percentage of the population, it's been remarkably sticky. 50% of the population in Illinois is still signed up for aggregations. Those could go away if, you know, the utilities become more competitive in price. Ohio has been remarkably sticky and has just built up an aggregation over time. And they're almost at 50% of the population, despite all the different energy reforms, or rather all the energy debacles that have occurred in Ohio over the last 10 (laughs) or 20 years. Yeah. I I feel like we forgot to uh, note this early on, but it's worth pointing out that one of the common features of CCAs is not only can the municipalities themselves pull out when they want to, but individuals within them can opt out of these things. Is that not true of all of them? That's the key... um, you know, I think the lesson I was trying to teach my students also is that if you stick with legislation and keep on working on it and iterate it, then you can introduce new things that you know overcome some of the obstacles. And so what the activists did after the first bill went down in Massachusetts is they basically wrote this thing in called opt-out aggregation, where anybody in the city and town can simply say, I'd like to go back to the utility, thank you. And they just simply opt out. Uh, most of 
cities and towns around the U.S. don't have opt-out rates of higher than five or eight percent. I think are the numbers of around five ten percent range. Mm. So you know, most cities and towns that sign up, ninety percent of the people stay in. But the key thing is that they couldn't get legislative support until they put in this opt-out uh, clause. It's choice. The word choice is is. <laughs> I mean, the word choice is like political magic. Yeah. Every, everyone loves choice in almost every context, or at least they think they do when they hear about I think about the rhetoric it. of choice is really powerful. I think, you know, we need we need to think about some things in terms of choice because that builds support. So turning to CCAs generally, uh, I, I guess the first thing I'd ask is, are there differences among and between them that are significant and worth, and worth noting? Yeah, I think, you know, you're seeing this, especially in California, where CCAs have been growing like wildfire for the last few years. Uh, you see the differences among them, both when they start up and also when they're kind of in process or execution and the directions they take. Uh, if you look at like some of the CCAs in California the last few years were marketed in terms of price, and some were definitely marketed in terms of giving you the option to buy more green power than the utility is offering. So mm-hmm. the first couple started in Marin County and Sonoma County, uh, generally wealthier enclaves in California, but they also have, you know, kind of uh, poor sections of, I guess, their territory also, they started off by trying to offer a higher percentage of clean energy than the utilities were at the time and also offering 100% clean energy options. They also have a new option called Local Soul, which is you could buy 100% California power. Oh, interesting. Um, Yeah. And then uh, some of the CCAs more recently, especially in areas like off the coast in California, have been marketing in terms of price. Uh, getting price savings for customers. And then you're starting to see, I think one really exciting thing to me is that a lot of the CCAs are marketing in terms of uh, local economic development, green jobs, uh, mm. and frankly, local control power is actually an amazingly, uh, like you said, political magic. It's kind of uh, something that is resonant in lots of places because you have utilities in California that frankly people hate. Uh, yes, people people <laughs> hating the utilities is 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 really key background to all of this. Yeah. And so let me let me run a semi skeptical take by you. So one way of looking at this is say you have these giant old utilities that have a lot of sort of old practices that have just kept going, uh, and they have a lot of old investments that they're still paying off and sort of legacy infrastructure investments and stuff like that, that they're still paying off. So the price you're paying to the utility is sort of a combination of kind of the, the market, the sticker price of the electricity itself, and then all these old legacy investments. Right. And so if you're a town, you can just opt out and say, hey, we're not going to pay any of those legacy investments. Instead, we're just going to pay the sticker price for energy. We're just going to buy our own energy. So on the one hand, of course, you can get cheaper delivered electricity that way if you're not having to pay the legacy costs. But on the other hand, you can see why that's a, like a limited strategy. If everybody does this, then <laughs> the, the legacy costs are stranded. So in other words, isn't the fact that a CCA can get cheaper power a bit of an artifact of the fact that they're not tied to these legacy costs. And, and and this is like a worry, I think, that they've raised in California, right? Like if everybody opts out and is buying its own power, who's paying for all this old stuff? So is that, what do you make of that take? Well, I think you have to distinguish between the legacy assets of the utilities being the legacy physical assets, like the literally poles and wires and easements and rights of ways, mm-hmm. and then the market contracts they have for power. And so with the latter, 
CCAs do come in to the market later when electricity is cheaper, and so they do undercut utilities. So this is one argument, actually, I don't think necessarily CCAs beat utilities on price very much, just in terms of um, the sticker price of the power, as you say, because, you know, the utilities, when they sign a new contract, generally any of the communities that went in for sheer opportunistic price savings basically lose those opportunistic price savings. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, it's yeah. a it's a necessarily a short-term thing because sooner or later, the utility is going to get out of those old contracts and get right. into new contracts with cheap power. And then the price differential disappears. And then what the CCA just goes away. Well, so that's where I think, you know, the opportunistic price savings, I don't actually think are really a great rationale to do CCAs. Are they not sold on that basis, though? I mean, is that not well, is that not been the primary sort of sales pitch? I don't, I don't think it's necessarily the primary sales pitch because you look at some of the CCAs and they're explicitly in places where people say, we would like to buy more green power. Right. And at times, you know, I think early on, I don't know this for sure because I wasn't uh, in Marin County in 2010, but I think some of those CCAs may have actually been sold in terms of, we think we can get the same price for power, but we can get greener power. Mm. You know, I don't think necessarily that the more successful CCAs are advertised or marketed in terms of having price savings. I do agree with you that some CCAs have marketed in terms of price savings. I find very little little evidence, or at least from our li- limited history, that those savings are going to be durable. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, do we have data? Do we know currently whether CCAs are paying less on average for their power? I mean, do we know? I think this is a really hard thing to study because, you know, CCAs vary by state. All the restructuring and all the state markets are different. I've seen one presentation recently that showed CCAs saving in California like 3 to 5%, I think. A few of the CCAs cost a little more than the utility comparison. So, so not huge. Yeah, you can't say like a huge savings, though some of them, you know, save 10% off the bat until the utility signs a new contract. Right. Um, but, you know, I think the exciting thing is that, you know, that local control part, some people are willing to pay the same amount as long as they can have more local control. I, I guess just to put my cards on the table, I'm a little like I can totally imagine a certain set of communities opting to pay as much or slightly more for cleaner power. Sure. I guess I'm just cynical about whether you're going to get something of like national scale <laughs> on that basis. Well, I, mean, I, I guess you have to look at like, you know, what do you want to happen nationally? If you're, if you're going to judge CCAs by that, I think you have to judge them fairly by what's the alternative, mm-hmm. the utility monopolies that we had for more than a hundred years, <laughs> yes. or what else is happening in CCAs besides the price savings, right? And so I think what the exciting thing you're seeing, uh, and I can get back to your previous question in a second, but the exciting thing that I see is that a lot of the uh, CCAs are doing things that we haven't seen utilities do. Like if you look at Cape Light Compact, they have a building electrification pilot, they have energy efficiency programs for all kinds of residents, you know, city of Boston has a special rate structure to protect low income residents uh, and basically protect them from price increases. So I think those are things that you can do locally. And those are things that are really well tailored to kind of the political environment of the CCAs. Uh, one other thing to pause and clarify here, because sure. someone had a question about this on Twitter. Yeah. CCAs are not tied to the rate structures of the utilities, right? They can come up with their own yep. rate structures. I don't want to speak for all states because, like I said, it's growing to number of states and you can't keep track of all these municipalities at some point. <laughs> right. But in Massachusetts, on my bill, we have both the generated power and the delivered power. And I think that they can charge their own rate structure for what they procure, which is probably the generated power. And the deliver the delivery charge is probably passed on to them from the utility. 
Right. As far as I know. I just wanted to call that out because rate design is sort of one of the hot topics now, one yep. of the sort of needed areas of reform. And it's something that utilities are slow to do. And I, I think the, the reason why you know it's worth thinking about rate design at the local level is that this is all designed out of Boston City Hall. Those officials are accountable to the voters. Right. And, you know, Boston Municipal Energy Energy Unit basically put together uh, this rate structure for the aggregation. I think that's the other exciting thing, which is the CCAs are bringing energy staff into City Hall for the first time since the 1970s. Yeah. Like Cambridge, where I'm sitting right now, has an energy manager. They're on their second aggregation, like Somerville, Medford. Uh, I think Brookline has an energy manager. And those are also the cities that are out in front thinking about what kind of local energy resources they can build. And uh, yeah, <laughs> sorry, I keep taking off on tangent after tangent, but but one of the things that, that was really cool in the article that, that this sparked for me is once you have a kind of local energy expertise and local energy management, then those people can work with like local transportation planning and local yeah. land use planning in a way that a giant you know, statewide utility is not going to be able to do. You can you can sort of coordinate municipal policy generally with energy integrated. Yeah, the uh, the kookiest one when I started researching this was the first uh, CCA in California, which called Marin, it's called Marine Clean Energy. It's now called MCE. But when you looked at their website like a few years ago, they would actually advertise we have solar panels on the airport parking garage, on the jail, on the landfill. <laughs> and, you know, it's like you start to see as I'm as I'm an urban planner, you start to see like this is a way that a local version of a utility can interact with like transportation staff, planning staff. Um, the really exciting project they had is they actually bought a brownfield site from Chevron for a dollar. <laughs> it's the city of Richmond. They bought a brownfield site because it had all these environmental liabilities, but I think they knew through the city government that they could basically build it into a solar site. They had the kind of local development knowledge needed. When they made plans to build it into a utility-scale solar site, they put in place a local jobs guarantee. You know, Marin mm. is generally wealthy, but has, you know, Richmond is a fairly industrial part of Contra right. Costa County. And so they actually put in a local jobs guarantee. I think they worked with local environmental organizations to build utility scale solar according to all the kind of green jobs criteria we want to have. So I think that's a you know exciting, kooky thing that you know they advertise you know solar on the jail, solar on the landfill, mm -hmm. solar on the airport. Like these are places the utility would never look. But I thought that was the kind of coolest, weirdest thing I came across. Yeah, yeah. the The whole idea of of energy planning being more integrated in the municipal level is just super cool to me, especially now as energy becomes, you know, less and less centralized, more and more distributed, you need yep. some distributed control as well. And that's uh, difficult with these giant utilities. But the flip side of that question about coordination and planning, you can see how uh, a municipal CCA could help integrate energy planning much more into urban planning, land use planning, local planning. Yep. But the flip side of that is one thing that a big utility can do is regional planning, you know, including uh, and even cross regional planning, you know, because one of the other sort of hot topics in energy these days is the desperate need for more cross regional, you know, transmission and planning. Do you lose some of that ability when you disaggregate into a bunch of sort of local atomic units? Well, I mean, I guess the important thing to say is that you can still regulate at the state level like we do in all of our states. And, you know, I had a student once who worked for the California Public Utilities Commission, and she said to me, oh, you're studying CCAs right now. 
it makes my job so much harder. I have to like look at a hundred cities and towns engaged in this rather than just three big utilities, right? Right. But you know, we already have we have the independent system operators and RTOs in uh, mm-hmm. these restructured states. Those are the regional transmission operators. We already have plenty at that level. This is essentially making utilities into solely wires companies that are companies that just deliver the power. But at the same time, you're actually building up this local capacity where these local cities and towns can basically express preferences for power. They transmit those preferences you know, to the wires companies that are delivering the power. They can advocate for this in statewide fora. The other thing is that, you know, to point out, like all, most of the CCAs uh, are all the CCAs in California, but in most states, they're all subject to a lot of the same restrictions that the utilities are for resource adequacy, for renewable portfolio standards. So, you know, they're subject to the same constraints. The question mm-hmm. is, your question about planning, how do we plan the overall system? You know, I would be hard pressed to think of a state where I think we're doing that cross district planning really well. <laughs> yes, so I don't right. think you can fault CCAs for not doing it well. Right. I don't think anyone else is doing it well. Right. I just wonder if that'll make it even even harder. It is worth pointing out, though, that there are associations of CCAs, right, yeah. where like a bunch of them get together to, to yeah. sort of plan as a larger as a larger unit. Yeah. And they, they're not only planning, I think you have to distinguish between like the kind of planning where we lay out the plan is what we're going to do. But, you know, a lot of them achieve investment grade status. So they're able to sign long term contracts now. A lot of them are, you know, investment grade status allows them to issue bonds. They're um, the biggest procurement of vanadium flow batteries and long duration storage is actually through a CCA in California now, or a group of CCAs. Oh, interesting. Uh, groups of CCAs are engaged in building charging stations, I think, on the peninsula uh, or Santa Clara. I can't remember which one. But, you know, the groups of CCAs can do things. And it's kind of because they built up like first cities and towns got together form this kind of joint powers entity, which is like an authority outside of the town's balance sheets. They form a separate entity. They organize that way. And then the aggregations start organizing among the aggregations because they've already done this kind of planning. Right. So aggregations of aggregations doing the planning here. Do 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 you feel comfortable making the generalization that CCAs and associations of CCAs are on average more innovative in these areas than utilities? I think that's... Fair. I mean, I'm thinking, let me think about the um, particular places. You know, I think in California, you can say they're being more innovative than the utilities. Uh, Massachusetts, I think you can say they're being more innovative than utilities. Uh, Ohio, I think they're doing really interesting things with energy efficiency and gas aggregation, actually. Illinois, I think it's hard to say they've been more been more innovative because partly the short-term nature of their cost advantages evaporated. Mm. And then uh, the three-year ballot referenda or the thing required to authorize CCA is not long enough for a town to commit to building solar and wind. They have the ability to, they just haven't done it because there's too short uh, authorization, basically. And is that by state law, like that you'd have to revise state law to revise that? Or is that something CCAs decide for themselves? I guess, I don't know, actually. That, I don't answer that question. I know you have to do it on the ballot in Illinois. I don't know if you can authorize it for a longer period of time. Yeah, because just so, you know, sort of listeners get the thrust of this is that if you're uh, a power seller, you don't necessarily want to make a big deal with an entity that's only, you know, alive for three years. Yeah. <laughs> like that's yeah, not yeah. that's not long enough to build a big contract around. Yeah. So other CCAs in other places are, have overcome that problem, right? Are just, yeah. are just char- chartered for longer. Is that it? 
I think so. Yeah. In, CC, in, Cal, in California, a number of CCAs, I was just counting uh, the other day, I think more than four or five have investment grade ratings. So they can, like I said, sign these long-term contracts. They're uh, viable counterparties. And, you know, if you sign a energy contract, uh, they're issuing bonds, they're procuring a lot of stuff. So, you know, I think they're basically looking, starting to walk and talk like utilities, basically at the mm-hmm. local level. They're just not doing the power delivery part. Right. And uh, is that, you know, in the long term, it's so hard to game out <laughs> where yes. this is all going. Is this, you know, especially it, it was one thing when there's a handful of big utilities, but now it's just like there are hundreds, thousands of these things all evolving in their own ways. So it's really tough to say what's coming. But do you think that, you know, one sentiment I run across on CCAs is that if you want fundamental reform, you got to go full municipalization basically you have to become a full utility and that and that a cca is like being half pregnant yeah. <laughs> do you do you think that being sort of generation only is a real limitation in the long term it depends if i think we see advantages in cities and towns owning their own distribution infrastructure because that's where you know ccas basically exist to take the procurement function away from the utilities right because the utilities have a local monopoly on distribution of power, right? Like that's literally the wire and pole that goes into your home. Mm -hmm. If we see advantages for cities and towns to be owning those things, then I think you might want to think about municipalization. But how would we, how will we see advantages when it's next to impossible to to do? I mean, Boulder's been, I don't know how long Boulder's been at it now. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. So, I mean, this is the thing where it's, you know, I started the story with Scott Ridley basically coming up with this idea about aggregation or renegotiating missile franchises, what he said at the time, because that's what he tried to help Chicago do. But he saw how hard municipalization was. And, you know, the current events part of that is that, you know, 40 years later, basically, or 30 years later, uh, the mayor of Chicago is trying to negotiate with uh, Commonwealth Edison, I think, right, is the utility there. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to renegotiate the franchise and the fran- the utility can essentially say, well, no, if you'd like our assets, you can pay us some wildly huge price for it. <laughs> right. And no, those are nice ideas, but we may not take those ideas into account or we might ignore them completely. And so, you know, the reason why CCA exists is because municipalization was seen as hard at the time. And I think Scott Ridley realized that he thought municipalization was always going to be too hard. The utilities would have yeah. too much political it's power. a little bit of a kludge, a kludge to get around municipalization. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, I just wonder, you know, like it's great in that sense. It's great in that it sort of uncorked the dam a little bit and got, and got things moving. I just wonder like how far you can get without uh, well, on this model. I mean, I think this this is the part where, I think, you know, you gave me a heads up about your moderate skepticism about CCA. <laughs> but, you know, what, what I'm kind of surprised by is that, you know, the antipathy, I think a lot of energy analysts sort of naturally have towards CCA because it's a new thing. And I don't think it's because people don't like innovation and they don't like new things in the energy system, but it does kind of call into question the model that we've had for more than 100 years, right? And I'm not like saying we should disrupt the system for the sake of disrupting it. I'm just saying that it's it's, pre- it's pretty garbage. I mean, <laughs> there's yeah. a reason there's a reason everyone hates utilities, yeah, right? Yeah. There's a reason decarbonization is going slower than it should. There's yeah. you know, like the system as it exists is definitely I don't know that you'll find anybody. <laughs> I don't know that you'll find anybody like, yeah, we've nailed it. Well, that's that's the thing. I don't think you find utility defenders, but then at the same time I think 
people look at CCAs as kind of this uncontrollable kudzu, as you say, which, you know, is kind of growing rapidly. Right. We don't understand the local wrinkles of all these things. Right. And I think that's okay. You know, I think this is the part where I'm kind of surprised. In some ways, the research kind of convinced me that we shouldn't expect something as big as the energy system to be totally understandable. And frankly, we can model and quantify it everywhere. That's why I think some system models are against it. At the same time, you know, I think we need to adjust the energy system to reflect local circumstances. We know it has to work together technically. And, you know, we kind of get into all the, we love our alternating currents and our interconnections and everything. But at the same time, like, I think we need to have an energy system where people actually have some ability to take local choices and frankly, make local mistakes. You know, you don't really have innovation without people trying stuff out locally. Right. Some stuff is going to work in California that's not going to work in Ohio and vice versa. And I think, you know, that's the Moderate skepticism, I think, in some ways is simply saying, like, do we really believe local governments can be as effective as utilities procuring energy? And it turns out they can be like we have plenty of evidence that public power is cheaper and more reliable. Right. And not saying that I'm you know, a diehard public power advocate. I just think that taking this half step is not as scary as it seems to some people when it comes up in conversation. Maybe that's the kind of undercurrent of skepticism you hear on Twitter. I don't know. That's definitely not my skepticism. I mean, I think uh, the current system is is terrible for a number of reasons <laughs> in anything and, and very, very, very dug in, right? Which yeah. is why you have to kind of like wedge your way in between the cracks yeah. and, and try to open up, you know, open up opportunities just for anything to be different. I mean, I'm totally into the disruption. <laughs> I'm into the disruption. Uh, I normally hate disruption discourse, but here, this industry, utilities, I mean, God's sake, if any industry in the world needs to be disrupted, it is monopoly utilities. So, I mean, I guess, can I ask you to state the source of your moderate skepticism? Is it the kind of hard to define nature? Is it the heterogeneity? Like, No, I- it's, I'll see if I can put it clearly. I'd, my, my cynical worry is just that you go to a town and you say, hey, we're going to get we're going to buy a power on our own. It's going to be cleaner and cheaper. Yeah. And everybody's like, yeah, that sounds great. And then they do it. And then when the power is not cleaner or cheaper anymore, they're just like, eh, and go back to the utility. Yep. You know what I mean? So in a sense, they're just kind of all these local areas are just sort of arbitraging cheaper power opportunities that are eventually going to go away. And then they'll just go back to their utilities. And then we'll just kind of be back where we were. To begin with, you know what I mean? Like, I, wh- I, I want to know what, if any, sort of structural lasting reform might come out of all this disruption. Okay, so yeah, I've, I follow you on Twitter, so I'm aware of your cynicism about this. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I guess maybe I'll have to reveal my hopeful cards. You know, I think once you get people to think about energy, you know, I walk around my neighborhood and I see signs that are like, I'm a proud customer of Arlington Clean Energy. Ask me about it. Huh. You know, I actually think that's a level of education and organizing yeah. that's happening that didn't exist. Totally. You know, the fact our town manager, our town meeting, energy manager, manager in lots of cities are talking about what you can do with this. Like, I don't think there's any reason to think they have a, a lasting price advantage, but I don't think there's any reason to think they have a lasting price disadvantage. Mm-hmm. And the incremental cost of these energy managers and this kind of organizing and awareness raising among communities is fairly incremental. It's like basically, you know, you're paying a utility to earn a profit on your procurement and delivery. So, you know, a nonprofit is going to have that margin already. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the fact that you have energy managers and you have communities talking about it, actually, I think that is actually kind of a one-way good development. Right, right. You can't back out of that. Yeah. 
you know, it, clearly in Illinois, you had like 50% of the cities and towns, once the price advantage disappeared, they're like, we're out of this. <sighs> uh, but 50% stuck in it. And 50%, I think, you know, there's a paper on this, but it doesn't track totally with education and wealth, but, you know, environmental attitudes, indicators of environmental attitudes. But, you know, those things are probably factors in CCA like choices being stickier than we think. You know, I think people, once they have those choices or once they express they want to buy cleaner power and the utilities offering them, I think those options stick around. I think utilities have, you know, basically a competitor they have to meet. And that competitor is, you know, as FDR called it, the public yardstick for private utilities. You know, we need a yardstick. <laughs> we need some alternative for there to be, you know, we need some competition for us to even measure how utilities are doing their job well and not at all. A public option, if you will, yeah. to serve as a baseline against which private companies have to, at, at the very least, exceed that. Yeah, I think what would overcome, you know, which is really, it's mild skepticism at best. But like, <laughs> I think what would overcome my mild skepticism is seeing more, like seeing CCAs do more to go beyond simple power procurement right. into this, you know, innovative uh, electrification stuff. and. Yeah you know, uh, local charging infrastructure, d doing more of this sort of getting integrated local planning out of this, that seems to me absolutely salutary. So to the extent that CCAs are doing that, that's exciting. I, I think if you look at the California CCAs, that's where the best news is. I think, you know, you have big procurements of long duration storage, you know, the biggest of certain technology types. You have uh, my kooky examples of where marine clean energy is putting solar panels everywhere they can. Uh, I think you have other CCAs that are, I think the Peninsula or Santa Clara CCA is basically engaged in a really large build out of charging infrastructure that I don't think the utility was engaged in before. Yeah, that kind of stuff is cool. And, and I guess the other part of my skepticism uh, is this question of the right level of control and planning for electricity, which is a much larger question than just CCAs, right? I mean, that's sort of like a vexing question that goes yeah. that goes way back. But, you know, Michael Picard, the the head of the California Energy, or, or not California Energy Commission, where was he? He was... Uh, he's the CPUC head. Yeah, CPUC head, uh, yeah. notoriously skeptical of CCAs. And yeah. his whole point is, we need central planning of the electricity system, some form yeah. of electricity. And that's, I guess I have the worry about that. I mean, do you think there's still just state legislatures by virtue of having the power they have are capable of doing that, even in the presence of CCAs? Like, is that a worry at all for you? You know, I don't look at CCAs as the problem or solution there. <laughs> You know, I, I think of almost everything about our infrastructure is kind of federalized in the way our political system is. Mm. I think you need in the U.S. is a big enough country. We have state energy policies. Even our states are so big that we need to have, you know, different large service territories. And those large service territories, we know that, you know, PG&E's giant service territory, they can't even manage their giant service territory to avoid wildfires, right? And I'm trying to just pick on PG&E, <laughs> but they're easy to pick on. Yes. But we also know that, you know, all those cities and towns in PG&E's territory, you know, for 100 years, San Francisco has had a fairly poisonous relationship with PG&E. And they've been trying to buy their transmission distribution assets for, you know, arguably on and off for the last 100 years. What works in San Francisco is not what's going to work in places like Paradise. It's not what's going to work in places like Marin County. You know, I think we need to have some mechanism for local communities to express, like, here's the things we need to do in our community. Mm -hmm. We need to get people engaged. And then that's not to say we don't need larger central coordinating mechanisms. It's just that I think we all have even more skepticism that investor-owned utilities and 
public utility commissions, the way they've been constituted, aren't going to perform that central planning function either. That's why the legislature steps in occasionally to try to do energy reforms in all these different states. You know, I think we do need better coordination in some ways, but, you know, is that coordination going to happen through a market? Is it going to happen through command and control? Is it going to happen through technological standards? You know, there's lots of different ways for us to think about centralized planning. Centralized planning physically is going to get down to engineers saying, okay, let's wheel power there, let's wheel power there, let's balance it here. That's physically what has to happen in the grid at some point. But also, you know, we're starting to enter an era where we think a lot of these decisions are too fast to be made by people. We're going to try to you know, automate parts of this. Mm-hmm. We're going to try to federalize some of these decisions to lower levels. I'm just saying that CCAs are basically a way to bring some measure of local accountability control in a way that makes sense to most people, which is through their local government, because they already have a relationship with the local government. And that makes sense to me at that level. I'm not saying CCAs are going to help us solve that whole central planning problem at larger levels, which, you know, honestly, we are still trying to figure out, I think, in my opinion. Yeah, it's such a, I've always found, I mean, one of the reasons I've always loved thinking and talking about the grid and the electricity system is it is just such fascinating conceptual problem, you know, like this question of like, what's the right mix of constraint, like centralized constraint and local freedom of movement, Yeah, you know, to sort of maximize outcomes to get the best yeah to get the best outcomes it seems like we're sort of having a not entirely rational or planned experiment in that uh, through ccas uh well this is delightful and i just uh, before we're done i I just want to emphasize one more time because this is one of the reasons that i wanted to do this podcast in the first place just to emphasize that like ccas now have become a very large force that is shaping the electricity system in pretty fundamental ways and it basically grew out of, you know, a dude with an idea, <laughs> Yep. <laughs> which, which is just to say, you know, if you have an idea, you know, it could be the next one. So like, uh, uh, you know, whatever the Margaret Atwood quote, I'm, you're always supposed to quote it. I think it's Mark, Margaret Mead. Oh, sorry. Mar- <laughs> Margaret Atwood have a very different disturbing quote, right. I'm sure. That would be a, a very different quote, right? <laughs> Margaret Mead, small group of, uh, a small group of dedicated people, whatever, can still have powerful effects, even on a system that appears this sort of like large and, and bureaucratized and faceless. Yeah. So well, on a final note, then, have you given any thought to sort of what might be the next evolution of CCAs? Like, like say, you know, CCAs are, are spreading, you're getting more... Um, you know, more clean power. Hopefully you're getting more local involvement, more local control. Have you given any thought to sort of like the next kind of conceptual evolution of this idea that might unlock the next sort of level of change? Like where's, where's it headed? That is a good question that I have to admit I have not thought about. (laughs) You know, I think part of the attraction of reading about CCAs and learning about CCAs is like how many different directions they're going in right. and that's what makes it hard to get our arms around what's happening. Like I think the sheer diversity of things happening among, among CCAs is what I find incredibly exciting. Um, you know, in terms of structural evolution, I think there's still the point where they're proving, you know, they have to overcome our moderate skepticism of <laughs> right. are they adding value at that level? Right. Right. If they are going to, I think, make changes that we can recognize at a larger level, like structurally, I think that's going to require CCAs organizing differently or frankly, 
utilities vacating some space that somebody can step into. <laughs> and I think, you know, that's kind of where a lot of our conversation is, is, you know, we have this utility model. Can we judiciously pare back parts of the utility model like demand response? Right. Are we able to, you know, put more decision-making in the hands of people that make the system work better? And so, you know, demand response is one way of kind of giving people different signals and, you know, performance-based rate making has been called many things, but, you know, that might take away or change the incentives for utilities to act in a certain way. I just think that to have structural change in the system, right now, utilities occupy most of that system. And I think we're going to have to pare back parts of their responsibilities to find innovation because I don't think utilities personally are going to do it. I used to work for a municipally owned utility and it was a great place to work, uh, but I never necessarily thought of investor-owned utilities as companies that were going to show us a lot of innovation. I don't think they have shown us very much innovation. Right. And I think in order for others to innovate, we have to basically say to utilities, you either have to let somebody else try this or put power onto your system or interact with your system in different ways. Well, I mean, uh, you can see CCAs growing and growing at a certain point. You know, utilities just start losing so many of their customers <laughs> that it's kind of going to force the issue, right? I mean, yeah. a, a crisis is probably not the best way to enter a phase of reform, but like it's not something they can put off forever at this point. At the same time, I don't think we should think of CCAs as precipitating crisis because, you know, utilities don't make a lot of money from from power procurement. Yeah, right. Uh, they make most of, their, most of their money, I think, from delivery. And so, you know, the procurement itself, I don't think they make a lot of money. And so I don't think you know, for all the complaining and moaning from the utilities and frankly, a lot of fighting against CCAs in lots of places, utilities fight actively against CCAs. But at the same time, I don't think they're really fighting against CCAs because they're giving up a major cost or revenue center. I think they're fighting because they're afraid that a new kind of entity or competitor is going to show up mm -hmm. and frankly, won't be more responsive than they are through public utility commissions. Right. Competition is what they fear. Yeah, it's kind of like an existential competition, right? Yeah, right. That's true for every incumbent, I guess, yeah. giant incumbent industry. But they could stay wires companies and be fine. You know, it's like they probably make most of their money as wires companies and then they could focus on you know, delivering power and not starting wildfires. <laughs> yeah, that'd be nice. All right. Well, David, Sue, thank you so much for uh, coming on and, and telling the rare happy story for our listeners in these dark times. Thank you for asking. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>